think I, I think it is. Um, all right, welcome. I'm not sure to say to say Happy Lent or Happy Valentine's Day or both. I was thinking about making a series of Valentine's Day cards for Christians, like I love you so much, just not as much as I love Jesus, kind of thing. You know, like appropriate Valentine's Day for Christians. Um, you got a Ted Lasso Valentine's Day? Yes. I got a Ted Lasso Father's Day card last year from Maddie, so that was sweet. Um, all right, so we are going to be in the rest of eight and nine. We got a huge section to cover tonight. Lots of stuff going on and some major questions happening uh, in the text and in my brain, certainly. Um, and then we have a plethora of questions for you to discuss tonight in your groups, so you can discuss as you wish, um, kind of a choose-your-own-adventure, so get excited about that. Also, uh, the spiritual practice for this week, I just encourage people to pick up the, this book, this Lenten booklet, um, so it starts today, Friday, or Wednesday, and every day of the week is the same. So every Wednesday, it's a prayer focus. Every Thursday is a fasting focus. Um, we start slow and we build. So like tomorrow, you only have to you know skip lunch, basically. Um, and then every Sunday is a hospitality outreach focus. And don't worry, it starts off slow. So hopefully we can work into those spiritual practices throughout the season of Lent. So, love to have you join uh, me in this journey. And then um, thinking about potentially trying to get together a group at the end to discuss uh, some things that came up in the book. Lit. I don't know when it goes from a book lit to a just straight book when you get to drop the L-E-T. Um, each week there is a reflection question so if you choose to do it with someone else, maybe you do it with your family, um, you can have a reflection question to discuss each week uh, on Sundays. So, all right. Is everyone done with their uh, cheesecake? You missed it? Hopefully it'll still be there. Let's pray. Lord God, we come to you tonight and we thank you for this season of Lent and this time that we get to spend together and for your word. And we just pray, Lord, as we look at what is happening in the early church, that you would just open our eyes to the character of you and the pursuit of us and us, meaning humanity that you've done throughout history. And we just pray, Lord, that we could live into this call that you have placed on our lives to experience this thing called your spirit and to live by your spirit and to live boldly in this new kingdom that you are establishing in Jesus name amen all right so acts chapter 8 starting in verse 4 we were introduced to Paul at the end of last week when uh, he approved of Stephen's stoning and then Luke chooses to give us a Paul a pause on Paul uh, for some other really interesting stuff happening. So, uh, verse 4 of chapter 8. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed, 
So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you said, what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they, meaning Peter and John, returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he was baptized, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea, or Caesarea, depending on how you like to pronounce it. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. 
The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And there and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when, he, <clears throat> and when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in comfort, in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Feels like maybe it's getting light, it's getting quicker even though there's so many more words. Um, I don't know, maybe we're just getting used to reading big chunks. So, last week we were talking about this idea that uh, we start to see the persecution happening to the church. Stephen is killed, and Saul enters the picture. We get this little preview of who Saul is and what Saul is trying to do. And as we've talked about, uh, going all the way back to the fall, and this idea that in Acts, we see this shotgunning out of uh, this kind of shotgun spray out of the disciples. They started in Jerusalem. Jesus says, stay in Jerusalem. And then as the persecution starts to happen, they seem to spread out amongst uh, the regions. Because Jesus, when he came back, he says to them, you're going to take my word to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth, 
earth, all that. So we're starting to see that happen. We're starting to see new locations, new people being brought into the story. And Philip is kind of the first character after this spreading out starts to happen. And we see Paul is still doing his thing, but Philip is, seems to be kind of the counterbalance to that. Now, for us, oftentimes we read about these locations and we miss out on the importance of what these locations represent. So if you think about Samaria, this area of Samaria, we're talking about a thousand years of angst, which is probably a light representation uh, of what's happening between the Jews of Jerusalem and the people of Samaria. So not to get into all of the history of of, uh, the Jews and the 12 tribes, but basically two tribes stay together, 10 tribes spread out. Samaria is not exactly the preferred Jewish representation. You know, when we talk about uh, Luke gives us the, um, oh my goodness. Why am I drawing a complete blank? I want to say prodigal son, but that's not right. Um, The guy on the road. (laughs) Yes, the Samaritan on the road. My brain is like the good Samaritan. Thank you. Sometimes you just wonder what's happening up there. I do the same. Sometimes it's actually nothing. (laughs) You're like, what's going on in that brain? It's actually currently nothing. Uh, So when you talk about the Good Samaritan, it sounds so nice, but uh, it is very important to understand to be a Samaritan is not a good position. And so for Philip to go to Samaria, there is some question around. It says to the city of Samaria, it's more likely the region of Samaria, and he's preaching the gospel. So you have this controversial area where Philip goes into to share the good news. Uh, and it is very effective. He's doing these signs and miracles. Unclean spirits are crying out. Um, Paralyzed are being healed. The lame are being healed, and obviously there's a lot of joy happening. So again, for us, you think about where is the last place that you would want to go to share the gospel? And for me, growing up in Yankton, it was like, it was just right across the river. Like, nobody really wanted to go to Nebraska. It's like, if you had to go to Nebraska, you would. Uh, but it's like right next door. You could see it, but you didn't really want to participate in it. Samaria is this place where if you got that assignment, you're like, seriously? Like, that's where I need to go. But Philip goes there faithfully and starts proclaiming the gospel. And all of these things are happening. And there is this particular Simon character who is known as this magician who has been, in verse 9, he has been amazing the people of Samaria. And Philip shows up, and he preaches the good news about the kingdom of God, and all these people are coming to faith. And once they come to faith, what do they do immediately thereafter? They get baptized. Again, we can't stress this enough. To be a follower of Jesus Christ, to be a disciple in the first century is to be a baptized person. So you come to faith in Christ, and then you are baptized. And so you see this happening over and over. And Simon seems to have this coming to faith moment, and and these people are being baptized, except there is this particular challenge that happens. 
they don't receive the Holy Spirit. And so Peter and John, confused about what's happening, you know, these two big shots, they leave Jerusalem, they come down to Samaria to experience and try to figure out what's happening. Now, this particular section of text has caused, well, one giant split within the church, or you could say like a tree is growing and then it has a giant branch if you've seen the, um, the whole church tree thing in membership class. The Pentecostal branch really starts to grow out of this particular passage because clearly we have an event where these people are coming to faith, they're being baptized, and they haven't for some reason received the Holy Spirit. And this causes some significant theological turmoil because if we believe that somebody who is a follower of Jesus Christ immediately receives the Holy Spirit, and then we read this story where they haven't received the Holy Spirit, we have a choice to make. We either have to say, maybe what I am, have believed for my whole life of theological thinking is not 100% accurate, Maybe it's the case, as the Pentecostals believe, you receive the Holy Spirit through the laying on of hands in this after event, which is what happens here. Or maybe, potentially, it's this third option where it's normative to receive the Holy Spirit once you've come to faith, and it's also the case that it doesn't necessarily happen that way, and there may be times when the Holy Spirit happens after the fact. Is there potentiality for all of these things to happen? Again, there have been huge divisions that have happened within the church over this tiny little passage. What did we talk about a few weeks ago? What is the number one detriment to the body of Christ at this time and ever? So Satan trying to deceive and bring about conflict. We had one word. What is the most important thing about the body of Christ? Unity. Yes, thank you. And so we can, we can really allow this story to create disunity within the body, which I think is exactly what Satan would hope for, is that we would have some big knockdown, dragout fight about this. And we would say, well... If you don't believe this, then I don't think you're a follower of Jesus and you're not even a Christian. Or we can say, this is a particular instance and it may provide ground for you to believe that you have to receive the Holy Spirit after the fact. And it also probably isn't that. Because, again, when we look at a story, in the, in, certainly in narrative or story texts like Acts is, we ask ourselves the question, is this descriptive, or is this prescriptive? So is it the case that Luke is describing what is happening, not saying that it is normative or normal, but it is an abnormal event that requires an additional step, which is Peter and John coming down and laying their hands on these people that they may receive the Holy Spirit. All of these are super interesting questions and have us scratching our heads around who the Holy Spirit is, how the Holy Spirit functions, and provides often far more questions than answers. It's just like, wow, this is super exciting and so confusing all at the same time. 
In that, we have this interesting conversation about what is happening with this Simon character. Because it seems to be the case that Simon comes to faith, or at least comes to some level of faith, verse 13, even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, okay, again, belief and baptism, okay, they're not alphabetical, but they're very close to one another, belief and then baptism, and he continues with Philip, and he continues in this state of amazement. But what are Simon's seeming motivations for being intrigued by what's happening? He wants to be able to have the power so that he can achieve money. Which, again, Luke gives us all these sprinkled instances of how money and people can be a challenge. So his motivation is not necessarily for the benefit of the larger body, which is often the case, but his motivation is for the benefit of himself. And Peter has some very stern words for him And notice, even in the end, Simon in verse 24 says, Please pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. So what happens to Simon? We don't really know. We don't really know. But notice, as Peter and John leave, okay, they have, it's almost like this change of heart that they're having around who the Samaritans are. And so as they go back to Jerusalem, they they continue to preach into these villages of Samaria. Now, after this event, uh, Luke tells us that, that Philip is uh, spoken to by this angel and, and told to head down to uh, this place called Gaza, which is this desert place. And you know, how many times have we heard this location in the past uh, how many months? As he's going along the road, he uh, co- encounters this person. Now, in verse 27, we get a number of descriptors of who this person is. So he's Ethiopian, which means he's from Ethiopia. (laughs) Okay? He is a eunuch. Now, there are various ways that you can become a eunuch, either by accident or by intentionality. Maybe you were a slave and you were made a eunuch by your master. It is the castration of an adult male or any male so that one cannot reproduce. So he's this foreigner, this Ethiopian. He is a man who is unable to have sexual relations and produce children. He is a court official of the queen of Ethiopia, and he's in charge of all of her money. So it's interesting because you see Samaritans, not liked people, Now you see this Ethiopian character who, within Judaism, is, he's not just like kind of low on the totem pole, he's like not even on the totem pole. So he has come to faith in Yahweh, he is a God-fearer, he has left Ethiopia to go up to Jerusalem to worship. Now, I'm not sure if you're familiar, like where in the world is Carmen San Diego? Ethiopia, Jerusalem aren't exactly like right next door. And certainly he's not taking a plane. Uh, He has a chariot, so that's kind of nice. Uh, So he's made this long journey. So his commitment to Yahweh is high. But when he gets to Jerusalem, he gets to the temple to worship. He can't even go inside the temple. Because the Jews see him as this like third-class person who's not even worthy 
of being in the temple. And we could get into loads of interesting and fascinating conversations about what is being communicated about this person and who God loves and who God works in and through. Because certainly the Ethiopian comes to faith, is baptized, and then goes back to Ethiopia. And in early church history, there's all of this interesting writing about how this Ethiopian eunuch goes back to Ethiopia, becomes this big uh, evangelizer of Ethiopia, and starts to spread the gospel in Africa. The eunuch classification, though, is in essence, he isn't even a man. And so when we talk about who is worthy of the movement of the Holy Spirit and who is worthy of the grace of God and the use of God within the kingdom of God, we, we can use these words like eunuch, but it doesn't even begin for us to conceptualize how the first century would have heard who this person was and been like, wait, God can use this guy? This guy who isn't even really considered a guy? Like, it's not like he's a male, he's a eunuch, which means he's a different classification of person. And notice every time after Luke doesn't choose to refer to him as the Ethiopian, every time he wants to remind the listener or the reader that this guy is a eunuch, which is like, okay, this is, this is important. And God's, oh my goodness, I had you on do not disturb. I swear. So, this eunuch is in this very interesting position. A, he's riding in a chariot, which means he has some money. B, he has a scroll of Isaiah, which sets him in, again, in a different category. You don't just go down and, you know, pick one up at the Christian bookstore that doesn't exist in Brainerd anymore. You don't order one of these on Amazon. He has a scroll, and he can read the scroll. Now, it's interesting because back in that time, you wouldn't read to yourself, and there was some interesting conversation in the commentaries about how to read to yourself is a modern concept. And so back in their time, they would read out loud. It was, part, it was easier for them because how the language was written to understand by reading out loud. And so he's cruising along. He's reading to himself. And notice Philip is driven by the Spirit right up to his chariot. Verse 29, the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. Now, we had a funny conversation. We had some people over for dinner on Monday night, and we had this funny conversation about uh, this idea of going up and talking to random people, which is either a gift or a curse, depending on how you feel about it. And so, I'm not sure where, I'm just kind of letting you let that sink in a little bit. So like if I said, go up and talk to a random person um, at the grocery store, like what, what do you just immediately feel like in yourself? Is it like, oh, this is exciting. I'd like to go talk to that person. Or is it like complete and total dread? Are you already embarrassed? Because if you're with me, you're like, you're talking to that person. I don't even know that person. You don't know that person. And Philip doesn't know this person. All he knows is that this person is reading the Bible and is reading Scripture out loud. And Philip, driven by the Spirit, says, I have to take advantage of this opportunity. And so in verse 30, Luke says, he ran, he runs over to hear what he's saying. He runs over to have this encounter. 
Now remember a few weeks ago, back in chapter 4, what did the disciples pray for? Boldness, yes. And so we see the prayer for boldness, and much like patience, if you're going to pray for it, you better be ready for it, right? Like if you're going to pray for boldness, God's going to provide some opportunities for you to express this boldness. Philip prays for boldness. Here's an opportunity to pray for boldness. And what does he do? He runs right up to it. He encounters this guy. He's like, hey, seems like I recognize this scripture. Mind if I join you in your chariot? Like, again, this is not a guy that you just associate with. Like, he's a foreigner. He is this eunuch. And Philip doesn't know this guy from Adam. All these things. And Philip chooses to boldly go up and say, hey, I recognize the scripture. Do you know what's happening? And it's this very interesting picture of how we take opportunities that God presents to us to be bold and to express what God has done in our lives and or walk alongside other people to say, do you understand what's happening here? Because Philip takes this opportunity and what does it say in verse 35? He opens his mouth. That's kind of important. There's a very interesting correlation that happens. Anytime the Spirit comes upon someone, there is typically movement of the mouth happening. Okay? So if you want to just have some fun this weekend, like you're looking for something to do, ice is kind of sketchy, no snow on the ground, go through, read through Acts. Every time the Spirit comes upon somebody, their mouth is moving. It's kind of interesting. He begins with the scripture, okay, beginning with Isaiah, and he goes all through talking about the good news of Jesus. Again, drawing the point together that the gospel doesn't start in Matthew. The gospel starts in the Old Testament. And what happens? He wants to be baptized, yes. Again, how many different ways do we need to say this? To come to faith in Jesus Christ is then followed by being immersed in water that is baptism. In a few weeks, we're going to talk about that in the Statement of Faith. It's like, again and again, you come to faith in Christ, you're baptized in water. The eunuch here says, hey, look, there's water. Remember where they're at? In the desert. Like, this is an amazing thing. It doesn't just happen. There's water, and he's baptized. He stops the chariot. He comes out of the water, and what happens? Poof! Philip disappears. And we get this interesting phrasing, and it, it causes us to say, does Philip literally, like, just vanish? Like, you know, just like a good neighbor? Philip is gone, poof, gone. And he goes up to, you know, somebody needed him in the Zotus. Or is it the case that the Spirit leads him away? Great question. But did I mention he's already been performing miracles, so it could be the case that he literally just vanishes. And then Luke gives us this contrast of but Saul, because all these great things are happening, the gospel is being preached in all these areas, and he reminds us that Saul is still around and he's breathing out these threats. Now I know for some the conversion of Saul is just like this most signature moment in Acts, and we've got approximately 11 minutes to talk about it. So here we go. So, right, Saul is uh, persecuting, killing people, approving of these things. Saul, we know, is this bigwig within the Jewish uh, history, within the Jewish uh, church at the time. He's on his way to Damascus. He has this Damascus Road experience. 
Like he is why they call it the Damascus Road experience. Uh, if you've ever had a come to Jesus moment, okay, this is a biblical thing that happens right here. And Jesus strikes him blind and confronts Paul. Now it's interesting because notice Paul has a recognition of the voice of God. And as somebody pointed out this morning, Jesus is the voice of God. So Paul recognizes Jesus' voice right out of the gate as the voice of God. And so he says, who are you, Lord? And notice that's basically about it. He has this conversion experience in which he's blinded. God directs him to go into the city and to wait uh, for Ananias. And the people that are standing by him also have an experience, but it's not the same experience. The men who were traveling with him, verse 7, stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And it makes us wonder, okay, how many times has somebody had a, an experience with God that we are close to, and we have an opportunity to either respond to that experience, because that becomes the question, what happens to these guys? Do these guys become his disciples that are later referenced, that are helping him out through the wall? Do they have this experience and, in essence, walk away? They're like, okay, Paul had this experience, but we didn't have this experience. How can, how can we have experiences and then share those experiences with people that are close to us as a spiritual movement in their lives? Or vice versa, when we're close to somebody and they have an encounter with God, we get curious about their encounter, which then also becomes an encounter for us. And the whole thing comes down to proximity. Who are the people in our lives that are close to us? Who are the people in our lives that we allow to be close to us? And are we willing to share those experiences with each other? Are we willing to take advantage to say, it seems like God's doing something in your life. Tell me about that. Or is it like, okay, whatever is happening in your life, that's cool for you, but I'm just going to do my own thing. Or vice versa, are we willing to say, I'm having this encounter with God, I'm having this experience, and I want to share it with you. Either way, Paul has this experience, as do the people that are standing next to him, and he spends these three days blind. And then, meanwhile, Ananias, not the guy who already died, just kind of, a, it's like a, a John kind of name, um, he has this experience where he has this vision, and Jesus says, rise and go to the street called Straight, into the house of Judas, because I want you to go to, into the belly of the beast. And now, again, if you were, okay, options here, like, here's your options. We've got mission trip, mission trip plans. We're going to send you to a place called Samaria, where, like, you've despised those people for, you know, a thousand years, give or take. Who wants to go to that place? Um, Option B for this mission trip is there's somebody who's been seeking to imprison and kill you, um, and we need somebody to go there. Who wants to go to that guy? You're like, I'll go to the people that we've been despising for a thousand years. But that's not how Ananias responds. Ananias says, here I am, Lord. And in the conversation, though, Ananias is like, okay, which is, this is just so brilliant, like, you hear, literally hear the voice of Jesus speaking to you. And you're like, okay, but you know who you're talking about, right? <laughs> like, Jesus, like, you're talking to me and you're in heaven. I'm not sure. 
I need to update you that on who you're talking about and who you want me to go to. Ananias has these doubts. And so it's interesting in this conversation of how do we live in a place where God calls us to do something, and we know it's God that's calling us to do this thing, not that we may hear an audible voice, we may not hear an audible voice, and we acknowledge, okay, yes, I'm willing, and yes, I'm doubtful, and both of those things can happen at the exact same time. Both things, belief and doubt, can be true at the same time. I know we've talked about this many times before. Obedience and doubt can also happen at the same time. And, you know, we talk about, we talk about the times that we've been to Detroit, and anytime anybody says anything about Detroit, it's like this, I don't know if it's a Midwest thing, I don't know if it's a national thing. Anytime somebody says, oh, you're going to Detroit, it's like, oh, are you going to be safe? And it's like, I think so, but I think the more important thing is, is God calling me to do this thing? And Ananias has this moment of, okay, God, yes, I'm willing to go, and yes, I acknowledge at the same time, I'm not sure I really want to do this because I'm afraid of who this person is. And then Ananias goes, and he gets to participate in the healing and the bringing about of the restoration of the, as Luke describes him, chosen instrument of Jesus. Those are Jesus' words, but that's how Luke is using them. And immediately something like scales, verse 18, fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose, and the crowd said he was? Yes, I mean, how many times do we need to say this? I've got a bunch of squiggly lines, which in my Bible represent baptism. You're like, really? They're additions. They're additions, okay. If I see baptism, I write a squiggly line. So Paul is baptized into the faith of Jesus Christ. And it just, imagine how that goes. Like, okay, you have this experience. Paul comes to faith in Jesus. He's baptized. Um, and Ananias is getting ready to go to the church gathering. And he's like, all right, Paul, you ready to come with me? And he walks through the church door. And everyone's like, ooh, what? Uh, I'm sorry. Who? He looks an awful like, like that one guy. Um, Ananias, like, who, why are you bringing this guy into our gathering? Now, I know we've talked about this briefly before, but it, it certainly brings up the question of how do we respond when we see people walk through the door, right? People that we have past history with. People that we might know of their past history or we might know, think we know of their past history and they walk through the front door and we have this opportunity to either say, amazing, God is good, the grace of God has brought this person into the fold and we can celebrate, like praise Jesus that that person has come to faith and are curious and they want to come and be a part of this thing and they want to be a, grow in their faith, or we can have this view of, I don't really buy it. Like, I know that person's history. I know what that person has done. I know who those people are. All of the things, I, I just, I, like, just don't sit near me so I don't have to intersect with you. 
And I know that this has happened many, many times. I've talked to people, literally have come up to me in the gathering space, and they're like, Eric, that person that just walked through the door, I don't know if I can be here if they're here. That's what's happening here. Paul has been literally killing Christians and imprisoning them, actively seeking the demise of the Christian church. They're not called Christians at this point, but the people of Jesus. And now he has come to faith, and there is a little bit of skepticism, as we might say. And it, call, it, comes, it calls to mind this idea that, that I have um, coined today, as long as I don't forget it. Grace amnesia. Russ just got the joke about me forgetting it. Thank you. Appreciate it. It's this reality that we all were once someone else. And yet, because of the blood of Jesus Christ and the grace of God that has been given to us by Jesus Christ, we now no longer have to be those people. And so we have this human tendency to see other people and think, yeah, I don't know yet. I don't, I don't, I don't know yet. And it's like, well, except that used to be us. We used to be those people. And so who are we to sit on this side of grace and say, like, maybe, I'm not sure, I'll think about it. What? As if we are the mediators of God's grace and God's forgiveness and the acceptance into the body of Christ. We are not the gatekeepers of who's in and who's out, who's accepted and who's not accepted, who's a part of the body of Christ. That is not our job. And at the same time, there is this fear that exists because we're human beings and Ananias and the other disciples are terrified because they know who Paul is and they know what Paul has done. And yet they hear what Paul is doing. They see what Paul is doing. He's proclaiming, he's saying in the synagogues that he is the son of God and he has done this complete reversal. He's gone from persecuting Christians to being the mouthpiece of Christ within the synagogues. And there is certainly some skepticism, and it makes us wonder, what does it take for us to see people, no matter where they're at, with the eyes that Jesus saw us when we were once entangled and outside of the kingdom? And how do we have grace and compassion for people that are outside the kingdom, that are wanting to be a part of the kingdom, and how, again, we've talked about this, okay, over the past few weeks, how do we go to them and welcome them in and invite them along on this journey rather than saying, once you get, once you get a little bit closer, then we can talk. And that's why one of the things about uh, the spiritual practices this, during this Lenten season on Sundays, it's we're going to start super small, okay? You've got to crawl before you can walk. This Sunday, okay, those who choose, this is not a mission impossible, those who choose to take the challenge to go up and meet somebody brand new and start to have a conversation with them. Maybe it's somebody that you've looked at and thought, oof, oh, yeah, mm, hmm, Maybe the Saturday night you pray for the boldness that the Holy Spirit gave the disciples in Acts chapter 4, and you're like, I'm just going to go for this thing. And that person walks through the door, and you're like, God, oh, i got to go to the bathroom. 
<laughs> maybe there is. Yeah, maybe you start in the bathroom and you're like, you're like, I see your feet. Hi, nice to meet you. Welcome to Timberwood. <laughs> Not that? I'm sorry. Notice how this happens. So Saul, he spends time proving that Jesus was the Christ. Now in verse 23, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap this up here real quick. In verse 23, it says, when many, days had, <laughs> when many days had passed, okay? This is, a, this is like give or take two or three years. <laughs> and, and, and so we read this and we're like, wow, this is like, Paul, he's just like catching on like really fast. It's like, no, this has been taking place over years. So it's a little bit like a slow to warm thing. What is happening? You know, remember back in Luke uh, chapter uh, two, it's like Jesus grew in stature and wisdom. It's like, okay, that was 10 years in one sentence, okay? So here, Paul, we get, Paul gets about three years of life happening in one verse. So we're like, how did Paul get so popular so quick? It wasn't that quick. But notice he escapes, okay? He escapes through the wall in this basket, okay? Fascinating thing. Makes us think of all these Old Testament stories that we don't have time to get into. And he goes up to Jerusalem. Again, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. I mean, again, it's just like, how could this guy be a follower of Jesus Christ? How could he have come, come around so quickly and come to faith to believing and being a part of the body of Christ? And notice what is so important here. What is Paul's pathway into the mix of the disciples? Barnabas, yes, the encourager. Remember these people that we were introduced to a few chapters ago and how they were playing this role and who they are? Barnabas has the courage to go to Paul and to vouch for Paul. Starts with Ananias. Ananias goes and he vouches for Paul and Paul is brought into the church. Barnabas goes and brings Paul into the Jerusalem church. And so Barnabas puts himself and his reputation on the line to vouch for Paul. And so as we talk about this idea of uh, relational discipleship and the importance of being together with other people and how other people's faith can affect our faith and how our faith can bolster other people's faith, we see how Barnabas puts his own neck on the line to vouch for someone else. And again, Within this context of reaching out on this, this, the Sunday morning practices, part of it is to say most of us in this room know other people that attend this body on a Sunday morning. I, I think I could say all of us do, but I'm just going to like couch my bets and say most, which isn't 100%, but it certainly is more than 50%. That's what most means. So maybe on Sunday we meet someone in the bathroom when we're washing our hands, okay, don't forget your thumbs, 20 seconds, all that thing, and then we walk out and we see somebody we know. I see Nick, and I'm like, hey, Nick, let me introduce you to my friend that I just met in the bathroom, and Nick's like, this is really awkward, but okay. Did you wash your hands? Yeah, you're like, oh, this is normal, and so now this person that I've just met, 
Saul. Now he knows me and he knows Nick. And this person who barely was able to get in the door because they were so terrified of entering into a body that is a church because they haven't been at church in who knows how long. Maybe they were just in jail or maybe they, they've... Who knows what's happened to them? They come to this place, they're like seeking grace and forgiveness and love and fellowship and all these things. And all they do is they go hide in the bathroom and I have this... I'm like, boldness in the bathroom. It's a new thing. We're going to put it up on the... Put it up like <laughs> stickers, right? out Like... Right over the sink, boldness in the bathroom. Like, what does that mean? It means, hi, welcome to Timberwood. What does that feel like for this person who's like so terrified? And I'm like, hey, nice to meet you. And now you met two people. And they're like, wow. And then Nick's like, yeah, come over here and talk to my other friends. And people are like, wow, how, when did you guys meet? Like, just in the bathroom. I mean, we joke about it, but... Um, that's what's happening here with Paul. Without Barnabas, Paul enters in not as a brother in Christ, but as an enemy of Christ. And so Barnabas sticks his neck on the line in boldness. And what happens? The church, 31, throughout all Judea and Galilee and those wonderful Samarians had peace, you could say unity, and was being built up walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. What an amazing, beautiful picture of how God's grace works in the early church and how we can say, okay, if we want to be disciples of Jesus, how does this live out in our lives? You can go to your groups.